Today's scripture reading is Psalm 130. Beginning in verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord, more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him there is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. This is the word of the Lord. Lord God, we do pray that you would hear our cries and that we would also be attentive to your voice. Amen. I love the Psalms. I love reading the Psalms. I love when we get to sing the Psalms. The Psalms are beautiful and they're haunting. They are revealing and yet mysterious. They are simple and yet confounding. For almost 3,000 years, they formed the backbone of worshiping communities around the world, from the Desert Fathers to Benedictine monks, from enthusiastic Pentecostals to contemplative Catholics. The Psalms have been the gathering place of Christian worship and contemplation. In many worshiping communities around the world today, while they read through the stories of the Old Testament and they read the Gospels and they read the letter of the Apostles uh, even daily, it is the Psalms which draw people together to pray and to praise. They may take a whole year to read the Old Testament, but in many worshiping communities, they'll read through the Psalms every month or every two. And yet, as central as they are to our identity as a Christian people, they are rarely, if ever, preached on. And I love to make sure that at least once during the year I take time. It's usually in the summer, mostly because I like the term summer in the Psalms because I love alliteration, uh, to take some time to preach on the Psalms. And so we've been doing a series at St. Timothy's on the Psalms. But why do you think it is that the Psalms are rarely preached on? Preach on Old Testament stories and the Gospels and the Epistles all the time, but why not so often on the Psalms. 
Any guesses? They're personal. Yeah. It's poetry. Right? And, I mean, how many of you... um, Many of us, when we got to that section in English, uh, we didn't mind learning grammar or short stories or novels, but when we got to poetry, how many of you rapidly embraced it? And how many of you wished that that section of the course would just be over soon? Right? It's poetry. It's hard to understand. It requires um, a different way of interpreting the scriptures than does narrative or a letter. And not, not often, a lot of it is not even placed into context for us. It's just a psalm. It's just thrown out there. And also you can't, you, you can't take it literally. You, you have to use your imagination as you read it. And as Christians, quite, quite often imagination is something that we are hesitant to embrace. And so the psalms cause us difficulty. It's poetry. But here's why I think it's important to preach on the Psalms. Because they are truly deep theology. The Psalms reveal to us the nature and character of God. His steadfast love. His constant presence. His mercy and His grace. But they also reveal to us our nature and our character. Our sins and our flaws. Our pleas. Our needs. And our need for Him. They reveal how we see God, our rock and salvation, our harbor and our anchor, our light and our shepherd. But most importantly, I think, because they are incredibly human. We may read the story of Abraham and say, I couldn't trust like Abraham does. Or I may read the story of Joseph and say, I couldn't be as forgiving as Joseph was to his brothers. Or David and say, I couldn't have faith like David did when he was in times of trouble. Or the disciples and say, I couldn't die for my faith like they did. But the Psalms are raw. They are unfiltered human emotion and thought and passion. In them we see people cry out to God in joy and thanksgiving, in sorrow and in anger. From God, you are ever with me, to the psalm that Allison just sang, O God, how long will you hide yourself from me? From the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want to my God, my God, why have you forsaken me and everything in between? I may not be able to see myself in Jacob or Isaiah or Peter or John, but I can see myself in the psalm. And as we read and meditate on the Psalms, we cannot help but be drawn closer to Him and to others who gather around in worship. And within the Psalms, as, as they're, they're somewhat random, but some of the Psalms are specifically gathered together for, for a reason. And Psalm 130 is right in the middle of what's called the Psalms of Ascent. And the Psalms of Ascent were a series of pilgrim psalms. When, when the people would gather from, from around, around the region... They would go on a regular basis to Jerusalem and they would begin to sing these psalms as they approached. Remember, Jerusalem was up on a hill, right? And on top of that hill was the Temple Mount. And so for miles and miles and miles away, you could begin to see over the horizon. You could see Jerusalem. You could see that city on a hill, the Temple Mount, the city of God. And as they approached it, they would begin to sing these psalms. For hundreds of years, they would sing these psalms as they approached the Temple Mount. 
They knew they were about to enter into worship and praise, corporate worship and praise, but was still a praise that was yet personal. I want to read that psalm again that that we just read, Psalm 130. This is from a a translation by a fellow named Robert Alter, who's a world-renowned Hebrew scholar. He translates Psalm 130 this way. You can follow it along in the back of your, your leaflets, and you can see what he does with it a little bit. From the depths I called you, Lord. Master, hear my voice. May your ears listen close to my voice for my, of my plea. Were you, O Yah, to watch for wrongs, Master, who could endure? For forgiveness is yours so that you may be feared. I hoped for the Lord, my being hoped, and for his word I waited, my being for the Master. More than the dawn watchers watch for the dawn. Wait, O Israel, for the Lord. For with the Lord is steadfast kindness, and great redemption is with him. And he will redeem Israel from all its wrongs. Now as you hear that and you read the one that's on the back of your leaflet, what do you notice about the voice in the psalm? Remember, the voice is is that which is speaking to us. What what do you notice about it from the first few verses to the last few verses? Just look, what what do you notice happens? What does the psalmist do? Do you see it? He uses a lot of different names. Yeah. He moves from first person, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Hear my cry for mercy. But he moves in, in the end, to more of a corporate understanding of this plea. It's an us. He switches from first person to third person without notice or explanation. One of the many tensions of our Christian faith, which was also true of the Jewish faith, is that our faith, our relationship with and to God, is always both corporate and personal. We can never separate our personal faith from our faith which resides in the body of Christ. We, on our own, cannot be the whole body. That's why the idea of being a Christian on our own just cannot make sense within the historic understanding of what it means to be a Christian and a disciple of Christ. But our faith and relationship with God cannot be only corporate either. It is essential that we recognize ourselves within the body, know that God loves me, is present with me and you, and not just with us. Now, in the Jewish faith, this tension need not be explained. It was simply understood as a reality of faith. You were yourself a, a person who is a, who is a child of Yahweh, but you also as the nation Israel were this child of Yahweh. They got it. But our faith in this, we, we stumble. But this is why the, the this is why the voice the, the psalm can move so quickly from I and me to we and us and back again without thought or explanation. For the Jews they understood it. But as is the case with many paradoxes of mystery within the faith, 
we as Christians tend to end up erring on one side of the mystery or the other. I'm going to give you two examples. They're stereotypes. I know they're stereotypes. You don't need to come and say to me afterwards, Ken, I think that was a stereotype. That's not really how things are. I recognize. But things are stereotypes because there's a degree of perception about them. So here's the first example. We tend to view the Roman church as one where it is simply through the mysteries of the sacrament of baptism and communion or the Eucharist where we find salvation and forgiveness of sins. Because they are participated in and through the church, they are effectual in our salvation and forgiveness without the requirement of an individual response. So people, can, people in the Roman church, they come, they are baptized, they receive communion, and, and that somehow has an effect on the person and on their soul, and they don't necessarily need a personal response. Now, on the other side of that, so that's the, that's the, that's the airing on the one side. On the other side, we have those of the evangelical persuasion. And we find them erring on the other side where salvation and forgiveness is really solely an individual thing. You make a decision to confess your faith. I say the sinner's prayer. I decide to get baptized. I decide to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. And the danger here is it begins to look like I end up saving me. Because I can do it on my own church is just something that's tagged on on the other side. The body of Christ is just something that I may or may not choose to participate in. It is not necessary for my faith. It is only me and I who are necessary for my faith and my salvation. And so we have these two errors that take take place within the broad spectrum of the Christian faith. But for over 3,000 years of both Jewish and Christian faith, the truth has been that our relationship with God is always both individual and corporate. As is our sin, as is our sorrow, as is our grief and our fear and our cries for mercy, as is our forgiveness, our salvation, the steadfast love of God and our hope in Him. My sin, when I commit sin, it is never just an individual personal thing affecting only me. Sin is always corporate. It's always public. It always affects someone else. And that's why confession of sin and the pronouncement of absolution ought always be done in a corporate and public way as well. So, with that as a background, let's take a closer look at Psalm 130. As I said, it's on the back of your handout this morning. I also printed off little individual ones uh, for everyone until Keith pointed out to me that it had already been done by Sharon on the back of this. So, um, anyways, I blame Keith for that. (laughs) Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice for my pleas for mercy. Or as Eugene, Eugene Peterson translates this, Help! God, the bottom has fallen out of my life. What a way to put it. How many of you have ever experienced a moment when it feels like the bottom's fallen out of your life? A loved one suddenly gets sick. You lose your job. Someone dies. Your marriage is at risk. 
something's wrong with your children, whatever it is. Help God. The bottom has fallen out of my life. Master, hear my cry for help. Listen hard. Open your ears and listen to my cries for mercy. Now just imagine this. Together, Israel is singing this confession and this cry for mercy as they climb up to meet God in worship. From miles and miles away, they begin to sing through the Psalms of Ascent over and over again. There's 10 or 12 or 18. I can't remember how many Psalms of Ascent there are. But they're singing them over and over again as they ascend the Temple Mount, as they ascend to Jerusalem. They're singing this song of confession and this cry for mercy together. And yet the psalmist, the lead liturgist, is making it a personal cry as well. O Lord, hear my voice. Which I've just argued is also, O Lord, hear our voice. In the midst of need and sorrow, or as Peterson puts it, when the bottom has fallen out of my life, I am to cry out to God. Now this seems... Odd on one level, doesn't it? I have called, I've called this sermon, I know God is with us despite evidence to the contrary. See, if God is, is merciful and loving and he is always with us, then why do we still go through suffering? If God is always there, why does it feel like we've been abandoned? If God is with me, why should I have to cry out for him to be with me? Now, the psalmist doesn't answer these questions. And I would suggest you can scour the whole of Scripture and not really find answers to those questions. In part because it is beyond our knowledge and wisdom to answer such a question, and in part because the reality is, and I don't mean to dismiss these questions, they're important in one way, but in another way, they're just silly questions. See, the problem with why questions is they are often a question of power. I ask why because I want to have knowledge. And what was the first sin that they were seeking after in the garden? They wanted knowledge. The knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge of suffering. So when we ask why, we're really stumbling over that first sin. The point, though, of the psalm is not to tell us why why these things happen, why we suffer, why we ought to cry out to God. The point of the psalm is to tell us that despite all that goes on around us, individually and communally, as a church or or as as a nation, we should cry out to God because he will hear our cry, because he is steadfast in love and mercy. And so I know that I can place my hope in him. But as we cry out to God for mercy, the people know it is not something we deserve or something or or that we have in any way earned forgiveness notice how when they approach they're approaching jerusalem they're initially throwing out here's our cries for mercy but there's this recognition recognition that we are yet sinners we have no reason to find ourselves standing before the lord in the i'm going to find it here in the anglican prayer before we come up and receive communion there's this prayer it's called the prayer of humble access we do not presume to come to this your table merciful lord trusting in our own righteousness 
but only in your abundant great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. For you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. They recognize as they're approaching Jerusalem, they have no right even to enter into the temple. They have no right to stand before God. It is simply because God's attribute is to forgive. Verse 3, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, if you should keep score, if you should mark down on a chart, if you should be a bookkeeper or an accountant who has a ledger for every name that has ever been created in the world, and you've kept a record, a score, well, who, Lord, could stand? Who, Yah, could stand in your presence? But with you there is forgiveness that you might be feared. If God were a bookkeeper keeping a record of our wrongs toward him, towards others, towards creation, towards ourselves, if he should add them up and tally it and ask us to explain ourselves, well, no one could stand and no one could endure. Again, this is true for us individually. It is true for us as a people of God, as the church. How often has the bride of Christ sinned against the bridegroom? Instead, God chooses to forgive. It is his habit. It is his nature. It is, as the prayer out of the Anglican prayer book I just read, it is his property. I love that word, property. It goes beyond nature. It goes beyond character. A property of something is a scientific word. If you don't know what a substance is, but you test its properties, if you have an unknown clear liquid, and you boil it, and it boils at 100 degrees at sea level, and it freezes at zero degrees at sea level, what are you beginning to think that substance is? Scientists in the room. Water. And you know it's water because of its properties. His property is to forgive. Forgiveness is an exercise of great Power. Because God uses that power, we should be in awe of Him. He should be feared because He has the power to forgive and He does it. That's why we worship Him. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in His word, I hope. My soul waits for the, war, for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning or more for the, than the watchman for the dawn. And waiting is one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? How many of you are great at at waiting? You're just really, really good at waiting for things. Anyone? Chris, you're very good at waiting for things. Caroline, is that true? (laughs) About him? Oh, okay. Waiting is probably the hardest thing to do, perhaps, except for forgiving those who hurt us and do us wrong. Maybe that's harder. But waiting is difficult. And yet here the psalmist says, he will wait. And how will he wait? He will wait patiently. His soul will wait patiently for the Lord. Israel and the pilgrims were waiting. Israel was waiting for God to restore Israel. Ten years, fifty years, a hundred years, five hundred years, a thousand years. Helps put your waiting in perspective. They waited for God to restore Israel. They were waiting for the new promised king to come. They were waiting for deliverance. 
and we wait. But the soul does not wait aimlessly. The soul waits in hope. In hopeful expectation. Israel hopes for her deliverer. We as the body of Christ hope in expectation. For what? For Christ to come again. That's what we're waiting for. For Christ to come again. To reign in glory forever and ever. As an individual, what do you hope for? What does your soul wait for longingly yet hopefully and expectantly? As you wait more than the dawn watchers for the dawn. I love that phrase. It's the way Alter puts it. More than the dawn watchers for the dawn. Robert Alter, reflecting on this line, says this. The watchman sitting through the last three watches of the night, peering into the darkness for the first sign of dawn, cannot equal my intense expectancy for God's redeeming word to come to me in the dark night of the soul. The watchmen, the soldiers, the sailors kept watch, peering through the darkness, waiting Not for morning. Morning is later. Waiting for dawn. It's the same waiting that Mary Magdala took when she was waiting to be able to go to Jesus' Jesus' tomb. Very early when it was yet still dark. When dawn was just beginning. The dawn watchers watch looking for the first hint of dawn cannot equal my intense expectancy for God's redeeming word to come to me in my dark night of the soul. So yes, I wait for the Lord. For one who forgives me without prejudice and one who without any reason except that it is his habit to do so. I wait. I wait for him to hear my voice because I know that he does. I know he is with me despite the evidence around me to the contrary. That's hope. That's faith. But before I begin to think that this is all about me, the psalmist reminds me that it is not about me, though it includes me. It is about us. For the Israelite, as he or she sang this hymn of praise, confessing their sin and crying out of their their grief for themselves, whatever it may be, they always knew that it was a hymn of praise for Israel as well. O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with Him is plentiful redemption, and He will redeem Israel from all His iniquities. It is corporate. Aha, but it's also personal. O Nicola, O Cheryl, O James, wait and watch for God. With God's arrival comes love, and with God's arrival comes generous redemption. No doubt about it, he'll redeem you, buy you back from captivity to sin. It is individual, and it is corporate. It is also the body of Christ. Wait, O bride of Christ. Wait, O Sutherland. For the Lord, wait for, for, for with the Lord there is steadfast kindness. And great redemption is with him. And he will redeem the church from all its wrongs. From this reflection on Psalm 130, 
As you go about your week, I really only want you to walk away thinking about two points, contemplating two things. These are, and this is it. The first is this. Faith and the way we live it out, express it, and worship through it, is always both personal and corporate, individual and communal. Second is this. Despite any and all evidence to the contrary, God is present in this world and in your life. God is for you. He's not against you. I want to close by reading the hymn that we uh, not quite opened up with, but was near the beginning of our service. How firm a foundation. Just listen to these words as I read them again. The last verse is slightly different, I notice, from the one that we sang. The one that we sang drew our attention to, to being on me, to being on self. It said, um, the soul that all hell shall endeavor to shake, I never will leave. Uh, I, I never, no never, will never forsake. It, it made it about me. This version is actually focusing it on the Lord. Hear these words. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he hath said, you who unto Jesus for refuge have fled? Fear not, he is with thee, oh, be not dismayed, for he is thy God and will still give thee aid. He'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by his righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters he calls thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow. For he will be with thee thy troubles to bless and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. The soul that on Jesus hath hath leaned for repose, he will not, he will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell, shall endeavor to shake. He never will leave and will never forsake. Amen.